Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. Except for this episode. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 156 for the second half of January 2017. The topic I'm going to talk about today is a little bit different. How do we know what we know? In other words, the scientific method. I'm going to come right out in this episode and say that it may be a little bit more uh, unpopular with some listeners. This is a thinly veiled episode in response to the man who, as I record this, a little over a week ago was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. I debated for a long time on doing this kind of episode because I really do try very hard to keep politics out of this podcast. And then it hit me. What is true, or the truth, is apolitical, or at least it should be. Facts are facts. If something alternative really were a fact, it would not be an alternative fact. It would be a fact. Just as alternative medicine, if it worked, it would be called medicine. With that in mind, looking back through the episodes that I've done, I've never really done one just on the scientific process itself. I've said many times on this show that the point of the podcast is to use crazy ideas and claims in order to show how science is really done, or how do we know what we know. But I've never really backed away and done a whole episode on just the scientific process itself and how it really works versus how it works in theory, as they say. And so what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to go through the scientific method, how it's supposed to work, and how it really works. In other words, how do we get to what we know? How do we get to that stage where someone in the news will say, well, according to science, blah, 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 blah. The scientific method is the formal process by which science, in its current incarnation, works. It's really a very basic system that I'm going to talk to in about seven iterative steps, and various versions of the scientific method may have a few more steps or a few less steps, but this is really the basic process in how I'm going to present it, seven steps. The first step is to make an observation. All of science is supposed to start with, effectively, you see something interesting. It's a very basic thing. The next step is to think of questions that come from that observation, usually of the basic form, why am I seeing what I'm seeing, or why am I making that kind of observation as opposed to something completely different. Step three is where you go a step beyond the basic question-asking stage and try to come up with possible answers to those questions, what we call hypotheses. So, if I see an apple on the ground, step one, and I wonder why it's on the ground, step two, then I may think that perhaps there's something that the apple came from and that pulled it to the ground. Or, I might think, well, maybe there's something inherent in the ground that pushed the apple up, that the apple sprung fully formed from the ground itself. Those might be different hypotheses that then, in step four, I would want to test. So step four is to come up with ways to test possible hypotheses. If a hypothesis is not testable, then the scientific method stops at step three. You can't move on. And, well, some of us would say that your pursuit is no longer science. This is why I personally have an issue with string quote-unquote theory, because currently it's not testable. We stop at step three with strings that, well, 
quote-unquote theory. So for me, it's not really science yet, but I know my views are a minority on that. So moving on, if you have ways to test those hypotheses, then you can go to step five, which is gathering data while you are in the act of carrying out those tests of those hypotheses. The data are the results from you actively testing what your hypotheses are, or actively uh, doing or carrying out step four, those tests to try to see if step three, your hypotheses, are correct or incorrect. This is often the longest part of the process and the most tedious part of the process. One of my former office mates in grad school ran tests of simulations, as in actual uh physical stuff, not just on a computer. Uh, These were simulants of the Martian surface material, and she got a lot of knitting done during late nights in the lab. During a summer project in undergrad, I became quite proficient at creating paper airplanes while I waited for code to run on my computer. One of the things that makes this process so tedious is step six, which is where you iterate. You refine, alter, expand, or reject hypotheses or your tests of those hypotheses, and develop new testable predictions and gather new data in order to test those new predictions based on your hypotheses. If your data do not support your hypothesis, then you have to go back and get a new hypothesis. You have to revisit step three, then go through step four, develop tests for those hypotheses, and then go through step five and test those hypotheses. If your data do support your hypothesis, then you still have to go back and do it again and make sure you're not fooling yourself. Finally, when all is said and done, you could reach step 7, which is where you have your hypothesis, it's withstood all the tests that you've thrown at it, and your data supports your hypothesis. And so, at this point, your hypothesis can uh, get elevated to the stage where it's now a model that can be used to explain step 1, your observations. Rinse and repeat. In other words, this is a cycle. Once you get to that step seven and you have a model that can explain your observations, then if you see something similar in a completely different instance that should also be explained by your model, you're going to go back to step four, develop new tests based upon what you observe because you already have the question, you already have the hypothesis, that's your model from step seven before, so you're gonna go back to step four, you're going to create new tests, you're gonna go through step five and six, run those tests, and see if your model from step seven from before still holds up and can still explain your new observations. If it can't, then your model again has to be thrown out and you have to go back to step three. That's why science is iterative And that's why science is inherently a self-correcting process. It may take time, and by time, I mean anywhere from a day to a hundred years or more. This is the inevitable march towards a model and better models that will explain more observations better. So now that you have a basic idea of the scientific method, the question is, do we really follow it in various disciplines in science? My freshman year roommate from college, after his first day of classes, came back to the dorm room and said that in his physics class, the professor said, we never really follow the scientific method, so throw out all of your old lab notebooks from high school. But in the chemistry class, right after the physics class, the professor said that we follow the scientific method exactly. As yet another anecdote for context, I've 
judged a science fair in Boulder, Colorado now for almost 10 years running. One year, one of the organizers asked if I could answer a question by a member of the public who had pretty much literally just walked in off the street. The man off the street said that he looked at the poster displays by the science fair participants, but nowhere did he see the scientific method explicitly laid out, and he wanted to know why. The answer that I gave him is pretty much the answer that I'm going to give you now. It's the answer to the question of, do we ever really follow the scientific method? The way that most scientists tend to work is that the scientific method all happens kind of at once, or at least multiple steps happen at once, and they don't necessarily flow in a logical order, in practice. But all the steps are at least implied within all stages of the research project. So let me give you a roundabout example from research that I started a decade ago, and when I wrote that down, I I felt kind of old. So with that said, I was a graduate student and in a graduate class about Mars. Uh, This was my first year, it was my second semester of grad school, and in lieu of much homework or really any tests, we had to do a term research project. I think this was pretty much uh, so that the professors did not actually have to grade much, but... That aside, I went to the professor who ended up later being my thesis advisor, and you heard from him in episode 55 on extraterrestrial life. Uh, He asked what I wanted to work on for my term project. I had absolutely no idea, but I said that the previous semester I had done a project on impact craters on Mercury, and I did not hate craters. He studies water on Mars, and he pointed out that there's this weird kind of ejecta blanket that surrounds some kinds of craters on Mars, and some people think that it's because of water. And so, still, no one really knows how or why they form, because we don't see them on the moon. This was observation, step one of the scientific method. Step two was part of that, the interesting question, how do they form, and other people had already developed step three, different hypotheses. So in my class research project, I didn't bother with steps one through three, or even really four. I did not formulate tests for those hypotheses. Instead, I skipped right to step five, which was to gather data. The idea behind my research project was, if I gathered a lot of different data about these particular types of craters and their ejecta blankets, then maybe other people would be able to use that data in order to test different hypotheses for their formation. After doing more work than anyone else in the class and getting an A on the term project, after that class was over, the professor and I decided to turn the class project into a graduate student research proposal to NASA. For that, we had to go back to step one, explaining the observations, and step two, the interesting questions of why they form. We explicitly spent most of the time on steps three and four, describing the hypotheses that other researchers had made and how to test those hypotheses by then, step five, gathering the data that I would do and which is why I was requesting money from NASA. It got funded. In the course of the project, I realized that I didn't have enough of step five, data. I realized that to really study these craters with all of the modern data sets that we had from Mars, I had to do a background global crater database against which to compare these special craters. In other words, we might see interesting properties about these particular craters that I would be gathering that data for for this project, but without a comparable background database of -of run-of-the-mill craters against which to compare them, then I wouldn't know how special these craters might be.
And so that formed the bulk of my thesis work for graduate school. But if we go back to these steps of the scientific method, effectively, I made a step one while I was doing step five. And so for my thesis work, I skipped, again, steps two, three, and four, and went to work to continue step five, but with a greatly expanded purpose and scope. My thesis ended up stealing step two, the interesting questions, from past researchers, but I used all of the data that I'd gathered to do step six, refine, alter, expand, or reject hypotheses made by other people when they had worse data than I did. Three years later, I wrote a real NASA grant to go back and actually do the study of these special kinds of craters on Mars. That grant is probably the most scientific method-like grant that I've ever written, where I pretty much explicitly went through every stage of the scientific method, laying out the observations, the questions, the hypotheses, how we were going to test the hypotheses, the data that we needed to gather to test the hypotheses, and how they would be refined based on what the data may show, and finally, how we would make our conclusions based upon what our data may or may not show. After being rejected one year, we resubmitted with minor changes, and it was awarded. And now I'm working on it with five other people who are each doing different parts of it. As another example, going back a few years when I was working on my thesis, one type of data that I added about each crater in the database was how deep they were. Two years after I graduated, I wrote another paper about Martian crater depths after measuring them a different way and with different data. I also have reviewed a few papers about crater depths on Mars, and in doing so, step one happened along with step two. I observed that there was no standard definition of crater depth. You would think there would be because it's a fairly simple measurement, uh, but because there's no standard method, that led to people making different conclusions from each other, even though what they were measuring was something completely different. And that led to the interesting question, in other words, step two, of could there and should there be a standard way to measure crater depths? To give you an example of one of the problems, I was reviewing a paper where someone said, all right, I've measured a bunch of crater depths on Mars, and I'm going to compare my measurements against these five other published results, including the one from Robbins and Hoenig 2012 and 2013. So he did that, and in the paper he said because his results were different, that meant something important geologically. But as a reviewer of his paper, I basically said, hey, look, you measured crater depth differently. You also measured crater depth over crater diameters that were completely different from where I measured them. And so if there's something weird going on at different sizes of craters, then you can't just extrapolate my results from big craters to your small craters. He said, oh, you're right. How come there's no standard? And so he and myself, along with about 14 other people, wrote a massive review paper that's currently in revision with a journal about crater depths. In this paper, we have reviewed all of the past literature on the data that people use to measure crater depth, the techniques to measure crater depth, and the different results for pretty much every body in the solar system that's been visited by spacecraft where people have reported on the depths of impact craters. What the paper shows is that step seven of the scientific method, some of the general conclusions that people have about crater depth on different bodies in the solar system, is actually wrong. 
So we did in this paper step one, step two, and from reviewing step fives from other people, we showed that step seven was wrong. And so in a year or two or three, I'm going to write another grant proposal to go through the scientific method and try to reach a new step seven that's consistent with everything that we now know about all the different data and the analysis methods that are out there. So going from just me, because you might have absolutely no interest in impact creators, that's perfectly fine, very few people do. So going from that to be a little bit more general, uh, researchers write proposals for funding, and when they do, they tend to more closely follow the scientific method. So the big question of, do we actually follow the scientific method? Well, in our grant proposals, yes. Uh, At least we do if we expect to be funded. If the reviewers who are reviewing those grant proposals can't tell what the proposer really wants to do or why they want to do it or really anything else, the review panel is generally not going to recommend being funded, especially when there are other proposals that do lay all of those things out much more clearly. Once you get funding, though, it kind of varies, to be honest. I mean, oftentimes, people will still follow the process they laid out in the grant proposal if maybe mixing things together a little bit just due to the nature of how lab work goes. But I can tell you for this Mars grant that I got about these particular types of craters, we're sort of mixing up the different steps together because of different projects and different people working at different times. That's okay. As long as we then use what we get from steps, well, at this point, steps four, five, and six, in order to, at the end, reach a new step seven together. That also tends to be the case with how we tend to write research papers, unless the journal has a very specific style that requires specific sections that address each step in a specific order. It tends to be kind of hit or miss, though. Uh, For example, the journal Nature, one of the two uh, main stream biggest scientific journals in the world, it requires that there be a methods section. In other words, uh, sort of part of step five, but that methods section is supposed to be after everything else in the article. Uh, That's a little bit odd, at least to me, uh, but that's how they do things. Unless the journal has that, though, how we write papers tends to be a little bit hit or miss in terms of following the scientific method. Usually, though, the best papers will still lay things out in an order that still roughly approximates the scientific method with an introduction and background section that goes through steps one, two, and three of observations and questions and hypotheses. A method section may also then incorporate some of the hypotheses, but it's usually going to describe step four, how they set out to test those hypotheses, and also part of step five, how they gathered their data. Most of the research paper is then usually spent explaining what the data are in painstaking and often incredibly boring detail. And I say that having just reviewed four papers in the last month. So yeah, very boring detail. But that's what you kind of need to do. You want to make sure that the reader understands all of your observations and how you made those observations, because it's those observations that are going to be the basis for your conclusions, or at least that's what they should be. So going back a bit, the data 
are what drive the conclusions. And therefore, it's the conclusions that let you get to the final step of the scientific method, developing general theories that can be used to predict future observations, hence repeating the cycle of the scientific method over and over again. What I didn't say in there, but did perhaps imply to those who can read between the lines, and is perhaps one of the most important parts of this, is that the data are often the most important part of a scientific paper, and they're often the most important part of the scientific process. If the data aren't any good, the conclusions aren't going to be any good, and you can't use them to make future predictions. It's also the data that one has to look at when one reads a scientific paper. When I read a paper, or when I explain to others how you should read a paper in very much a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do process, I don't look at the conclusions at all. I look at the data. Do I trust their data-gathering process? Does it seem reasonable? Do the data gathered seem reasonable? Does it look like the researchers have accounted for everything that they could, not only in what the data show, but in the uncertainties associated with that data? I literally, just before recording this, had a back and forth with an author of a paper that I had reviewed of his, and he was saying, well, what's the issue here? And I said, look, your data might be perfectly fine, but without a understanding of the uncertainties on your data, I don't trust the results at all. You have to show what the uncertainties are on your data from every step of the process. Hopefully he will. Uh, if he doesn't, then when I get the paper a second time, I will be making the same point in my review. So with that said, it's only after that step, and if the answer is yes to all of those questions about the data that I have, that I even start to look at the conclusions. Because if the data aren't valid, then neither are the conclusions. This is in marked contrast with some pseudoscientists who pretend that they're doing science. For example, the host of the Skeptico podcast, that's Skeptico with a K, not with a C, is Alex Tsikiris, and he's very fond of saying that a certain author in a published, peer-reviewed paper, who's a doctor, concluded something like proof of an afterlife. What he fails to understand, and has actually had it pointed out to him many times and still refuses to acknowledge, is that the conclusions don't matter if the data themselves are invalid. The same thing goes for a common whipping boy on this podcast, Richard Hoagland. I was listening about three days ago to a very old episode of Coast to Coast AM broadcast from the 5th of September 2002, 15 years ago, or I guess uh, 14 and a half years ago, where he was claiming that he had, yet again, undeniable proof that there were cities on Mars. Problem is, he was completely misinterpreting how spacecraft instruments work, claiming, for example, that an altimeter that was in orbit around Mars that uh, used lasers to ping off the surface, that that altimeter actually pinged a laser several hundreds of meters below the surface, which, of course, if it did that, it wouldn't be a very useful altimeter. But anyway, he completely misunderstood how spacecraft instruments work. And besides that, most have concluded since that time, and actually at that time, that he had been fed faked data by someone who wanted to make him look like a fool. So this is another case where you have to investigate the data before you can even move to the next step of the process. And that brings me to the next and final step of this process that is sort of unstated, but really should be stated a lot more, and that's skepticism's role in science. 
My dad, who you heard from in episode 114 about ethics and science, recently was given the highest award offered by the Board of Trustees at the hospital at which he does research. In his acceptance speech, he talked about the scientific process and how he was lucky to be in an environment, to be in a field even, where failure was an option. Your experiment doesn't always have to work out the way you plan. And when it doesn't, you have to pick up and keep going. It's a learning experience for everyone. But he also talked about how in science, you not only have to understand your failures, but you have to understand your successes. And you have to understand when your successes really are successful. He told the room of trustees, colleagues, donors, and a few family members that self-imposed skepticism is one of the most important parts of the scientific process. If he had an experiment turn out the way he wanted it to, he treated that with more skepticism than the ones that did not turn out the way he wanted them to. He refused to take his results at face value and to think that the outcome was real because he recognized that we are perhaps the best at fooling ourselves rather than other people. And because of that, we have to treat our own work, especially when it confirms our preconceived notions, with the utmost skepticism. And that brings me to my wrap-up, where I'm going to address what may lose me a few listeners. As I record this, the current administration in the United States executive branch of the government is perhaps the most anti-science, anti-reality administration that we have had, if not ever, then at least in a long time. The man at the head is a conspiracy theorist. It's an objective fact, an objective, undeniable observation, for example, that the crowd at his inauguration was significantly smaller than that of his predecessor. Instead of accepting that, he chose to contact the head of the National Park Service to dispute photographs taken that showed the crowd size. When the director did not do that, he had his press secretary dispute the crowd size to the public, and his counselor, Kellyanne Conway, went to the news and said that the description of crowd size was just an alternative fact. This is a trivial and trite example, but it's a simple one that shows the problem. We have objective data. Step five of the scientific method. And not only photographs taken from the same vantage point, but bus permits and airplane records that give us an idea of how many people went to the National Mall on January 20th, 2017. The conclusion from that data is therefore pretty solid. It's hard to make a different conclusion. And yet, he refuses to believe that. Further, the man believes literally dozens of other conspiracies, including that vaccines cause autism, California didn't really suffer a drought the last few years, and that climate change is a conspiracy invented by China. Those are just a few of the non-political ones. Speaking as a scientist, it's incredibly disheartening to have someone at the head of federal agencies who has such a profound distrust for the most basic process of how we know what we know. One who would rather make up, quote, alternative facts, end quote, also known simply as lies, in order to justify their position. Throughout the last, well, more than 150 episodes over the last five or more years, I've tried to show you, well, to sound a bit like a broken record, how we know what we know, why we have confidence in what we know rather than what a pseudoscientist claims, and where there are still open questions because we don't have the data that we need, and sometimes even how you can do your own simple experiment to demonstrate why something that I've explained is real as opposed to the counterclaim by, 
whatever claimant I'm addressing. I fully realize that the stuff I talk about doesn't usually matter in the big scheme of things. Like, you're really never going to need to know the shape of Mercury's magnetic field. Okay, fine. But my hope is that the methods of analyzing claims can help you in your own life when confronted by something that really does matter and really could have a big effect on your life. Unfortunately, we now have a president who clearly does not listen to this podcast. I honestly do worry, not only for the decisions that he'll make when he refuses to accept basic and trivial things, but also more important things. Anyway, this has turned into a little bit more of a disappointed rambling than something pointed. To try to tie things together in a little bit more of a cohesive way, there is a reason why we know that vaccines do not cause autism, how we know when there is a drought or when sea levels rise, or how we know what's going on with our climate. There's a reason why more than 97% of climate scientists agree that global temperatures have increased beyond normal rates in the last 100 years, and why all comes back to the scientific method and how things are done and the inherent self-correcting and self-verifying nature of the scientific process. So with that uh, perhaps a little less lighthearted wrap-up, I'm only going to give one announcement in this episode uh, before I play the outro music, and that is that uh, in three hours I'll be recording the next episode, so hopefully that will be out sooner rather than later. We'll see. I learned not to make promises with timing. Uh, But with that said, I do plan to return to the normal pseudoscience-slaying crazy claim stuff uh, in future episodes. Um, as I said, just kind of with the last 10 days or so of this administration and what's been happening, and, well, I think I feel a little bit like Sharon Hill of Doubtful News, who uh, is also the host of the recently launched 15 Credibility Street podcast, where in the latest episode, she just had a brief cameo, and the reason was she just hasn't quite been in the mood to do the a crazy claim addressing given what's been going on recently. And I kind of felt the same way with this episode. I just didn't really feel in the mood to talk about how young earth creationists were disproving absolute geocentrism, uh, probably for the same reason that they try to disprove flat earther stuff. So I decided to do this episode. Uh, Hopefully I have made my point a little bit clear. I will try to keep politics out of future episodes, as I tend to try to do, uh, other than this little um, disappointing rambling at the end. But, as I said at the beginning, truth is apolitical. Science in general is apolitical. What you do with scientific stuff after the conclusions have been made is oftentimes, unfortunately, political. Uh, People say that Einstein is responsible for the atomic bomb. So Einstein is the cause of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, bombings in World War II. That's kind of like saying that Newton is therefore responsible for every bomb that's ever been set off because without his basic formulations of classical mechanics, we wouldn't be able to really know how to predict where a bomb is going to land. What you do with science 
and how you try to respond to problems in stuff that science points out can be political. But science itself is not political. And silencing scientists who are trying to communicate their basic scientific research and findings to the public should never be condoned. So with that said, and sorry I got a little political again at the end here, I will say that the next episode, which, as I said, I'm recording in about three hours, is not going to be at all political, and in fact will feature several special guests that I'm sure some of you are going to know. Um, I'll just give a hint in this episode. They are Canadian. So with that said, so long till next time. That wraps up this topic for the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can email directly, podcast at sjrdesign.net. It's just the website URL, but replace the first period with an at sign. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me on Twitter at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, even if I don't often respond. Uh, if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or now on Google Play, so you can go there too, or another podcast, website, or portal of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends, family, and maybe even real people that you do know in real life who aren't friends or family. 